One of the greatest rock and roll stars of all time, although rock and roll's only been around for about 75 years, so all time is a big word, worth about half a billion dollars. Everybody knows him. Open any door. It's a song that was just put out two weeks ago. Brand new. He's 80 years old. And you hear the longing, sweet sounds of heaven. They're coming down. I want them to come down. Let no woman or child go hungry tonight. Please protect us from the pain and the hurt. Let the music play loud. Let it burst through the clouds and we all feel the heat of the sun. Sing, let us shout, let us all stand up proud. And this is as biblical as the day is long. Let the old still believe they are young. I smell the sweet, sweet sense of heaven tumbling down. I feel that longing, especially in these days. That heaven to come tumbling down. We're going to be reading today one of the verses that one of you gave to me from Romans chapter 11. It's the very end of Romans chapter 11, and it's the verse that caps off Paul's theological masterpiece. I don't know how much you know about the letter of Paul to the Romans, but it's, it, it has 11 chapters of like pure theology. And starting from chapter 12, it gets into the practice. Because of this, how do we live as community of faith? But up till now, it's just pure theology that books and books and books and books and books and books and books, and books have been written about. And this is how he concludes this whole 11 chapters of theology Romans 11.36 should be projected. For from him and to him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Now, if you've been at Trinity Church over the last few years, you will immediately recognize what I'm about to say. That is, this is God's space meeting our space. You remember that? Right? Words of N.T. Wright, God's space meeting our space. In he, from him and through him and to him are all things. That's what the whole Bible's about, God's space meeting our space. In order to really understand what this verse means, you have to go all the way back in the Bible to Genesis 12. Genesis 12 is what's commonly known as the calling of Abraham. You remember that God created the world in in Genesis 1 and 2, and it was very good. And then in Genesis 3, things got broken up by sin. And then in the rest of the chapters, there's all these consequences of sin. Ending up uh, in in chapter 11 in what we call the Tower of Babel, where, where the people are spread out with their different languages all over the earth. And then God starts this new thing. He calls Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. And the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, from Ur and your kindred and your your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be 
a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. For those of you counting the alls, there's another one. We talked about this a little bit last week, and you'll recognize this theme of mine. Is the church a lifeboat or a colony? Is the church a lifeboat as the world in the, the Titanic is sinking and the church is pulling people out of the cold waters and, and saving them for some future, I get to go to heaven when I die? It's the image of the church that most of us grew up with. The Bible presents another image. It's a colony. God is calling Abraham out and sending him into the world, into this, what's at that time called the promised land, so that there something can be experienced of the world the way that God intended it to be, with this harmony between God and man, between men horizontally, and between people and their creation. That's what God called Abraham to do, to be a colony, not a lifeboat. I hope you never forget that. It's what election is about. If you grew up in the Reformed faith, you've heard a lot about election. And your idea of election is probably God looked at all this teeming mass of sinful humanity and chose a number out, whether that's a few or a lot, no one really knows. There's all kinds of discussions about Chose a few out in order to bring them into heaven. That's the doctrine of election, as most of us received it. Election to a special privilege. It's not the story of the Bible. Election is to a special responsibility. You are called out because God says, unless you go and tell somebody, unless you go and show somebody what it's like, it's not going to happen. I want you to go. It's not a vertical movement pulling us up there. It's a horizontal movement. God's, and you've heard this from me over nine years. God is sending us out. That's what he did with Abraham. Sending you out so that through you, all families of the earth, we blessed. Of course, that didn't go very well. If you know the Bible, you know the story. There was the, the slavery in Egypt, and then there was the entering into the promised land, and that didn't go by very well, and then there was the exile. Then God sent Jesus, his elect one, into the world to be the light of the world. We talked about at the beginning, to be the truth, the way, the life, the shepherd. And the church is established after Christ goes back to heaven. And then there's this church in Rome. And Paul writes this letter to the church at Rome, this probably pretty small church scattered around in house churches. And I don't know if you remember back in 2019, 20, somewhere back in there, I did a whole ser- series on the book, on the letter to the Romans based on a book. And if you want to note it, listen carefully. The book is titled, Romans Disarmed, Resisting Empire, Demanding Justice, by Sylvia Casemont and Brian Walsh. Romans Disarmed, Resisting Empire, Demanding Justice. If you want to note it, if you don't note it now, 
haven't noted it now, and you want to know, ask me again afterwards, I'll tell you. You'll remember that the authors of this uh, commentary on Romans uh, um, put before us two different people. I don't know if any of you remember that. There were two people. There were Iris and Nereus. Iris was a slave girl from northwest Africa. She'd been captured in some Roman um, uh, um, conquering movement and brought back to Rome. Pulled away from her people. She was in exile in Rome. She was probably in the house of some wealthy Roman and probably had as main job the care of the children. But alongside of that, she was a slave. and Most likely abused in every kind of way, including sexually. And as the story's told, when her child, born out of one of those rapes, was five years old, he disappeared and was sold into slavery. Nyrus is in this house with all of this background and all this baggage. And somehow she'd heard about Jesus, a really weird thing. And somehow there were some people in this household that were starting to get caught up with this idea about Jesus. And it, 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 tickled, it tickled her ears in the good sense. She listened. She was there and she was present, wondering, what does this mean for me? And then there's Nereus, who was a Jew, born and raised in Jerusalem. And I don't know the story, but somehow he ended up in exile in Rome. And there he was in Rome in this pagan city, full of idols, the thing that Jews hated the most, the thing that made them almost vomit, idols, and meat offered to idols, and all these rituals to all these gods, the monotheistic Jews, God is one, there is no other. And here's, it was just awful. And there he was, doing his best to hold himself to the Torah, to the law of Moses, in the hope that the Messiah would come someday. And that his Jewish people would be freed from slavery. And he was also in this household for some reason. He'd also heard about Jesus, heard that people thought that Jesus might be the Messiah. It was really weird because he died on a cross, and that doesn't match anything. But still, there was something that grabbed him. So when Paul wrote the letter to the Romans, he wrote it down and he gave it to Phoebe. And Phoebe traveled to Rome. And as was the custom at that time, Phoebe would have stood up in this household of this Roman wealthy person and would have read the letter to the Romans and would have explained it And guess who was in the audience? Iris and Nereus. And they hated each other. Nereus looked at Iris and thought, ah, boy. There's a pagan idol-worshipping slut. 
I don't want to have anything. I can't even touch her. I'm a, I don't even want to be in the same room as her. And Iris is looking at Nereus and thinking, what, what, what? A hypocritical racist pig. He walks around with his nose up in the air. He thinks he's this chosen people. He thinks the Messiah is going to come through them. And they're the center of the world. I don't want to have anything to do with him. And there they are in this court of this house, listening to the letter to the Romans. And Phoebe reads this in chapter 1. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress their truth. And Nereus is going, ha ha, Iris, that's you. You're one of those heathen. And he's sitting there with his, he's, yeah, 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 that's right, that's you. Aren't I glad that I aren't like you? Or ain't like you if he's from the South. And Phoebe reads a little further. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And Iris is looking at Nereus and going, aha, I told you. Right? Iris is thinking, yeah, I had you pegged. I knew it. See these two people sitting there? Both coming out of their own agony and pain, deeply rooted in just awfulness, in horror. And looking at each other, pointing their fingers. You're a heathen. You're a hypocrite. And they both get just shaken to their core when Paul, when Phoebe reads this. But now the righteousness of God should be the next one to come up. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, and here it comes. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Can you imagine Iris looking at Nereus and saying, Oh, wait a minute. Uh-huh. And Nereus looking at Iris, Whoa, wait a minute. 
All have sinned and fall short of the glory. See these lights going on? Wait a minute. It's not just you. It's us. And then even further, and here's the most stunning thing of all. Therefore, as one trespass and are justified. Yeah, go, go ahead. Sorry, Peter, keep going. The next one. Thanks. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. And Iris is going, also for him? And Nereus is going, oh, I, I can't believe this. This just can't be true. That there's justification, whatever that means, it's a whole other sermon or three. For all people? Even for him? And even for her? And even for them? Can you get a little glimpse of what's happening in their minds? All of their paradigms of line drawing and of wall building and of differentiating themselves from one another are being blown up as Phoebe reads and explains this letter of Paul to this group of people deeply rooted in pain and exile and sorrow and horror and deeply divided and deeply fighting against one another. And all of this is background. And if you know the, the letter to the Romans, you know these very famous chapters between 9 and 11, where um, the doctrine of election that I referred to earlier finds a lot of its roots in the, in the New Testament. You remember, perhaps, that Paul talks in those chapters about this, this tension between the Jews and the Gentiles. How does this work? God chose Abraham, but there's all these Gentiles, and now the Gentiles are coming in. And how does that work? If the Jews really were the chosen people, how come they're in exile? And if the, if the Gentiles are so pagan, how can they be brought? How, how is all that working? And again, sermons and sermons and books and books and books. But this is, this is, this is the, the heart of the struggle in Romans and in the New Testament church. How, how does it work between these two groups? And at the end of chapter 11, Paul says this, and again, I wish I had all kinds of time to go through the chapters. I don't. Paul says this, for just as you were at one time, and he's speaking to the Jews, I'm sorry, speaking to the Gentiles, for just as you, the Gentiles, were at one time disobedient to God, you were pagans, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, the disobedience of the Jews, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may receive mercy. And so there's this, again, this, this tension, this interplay between 
what does it look like to receive mercy, to be in God's favor, but then also to be like out of, how does that work? And then Paul says this, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Those of you counting the alls, there's two more. I don't know what consigned to disobedience means. I don't really know what having mercy on all means either. That's what's there. Mercy on all. Iris looks at Nereus. Wow. God has mercy on that hypocrite that won't even eat at the same table with me. And Nereus looks at Iris. Says, wow. God has mercy on that pagan who worships at the altar, who eats the food offered to idols, who's had children out of wedlock. God has mercy on her. Now just think about that for a second. God having mercy on all. What about your brother from whom you're estranged? Or your sister? Does God have mercy on him? What about your ex-partner? God have mercy on him or her? What about your parent that didn't provide you with a safe place, who maybe hit you or yelled at you, kept you down? Does God have mercy on him or her? Let me up the ante a little bit. What about an abuser? Is all all or not? What about David Zanstra? Does God have mercy on him? What if you were a Native American living on a reservation and your children had been taken away from you by children and youth services because you didn't have any electricity in your house and thus no refrigerator. And so you couldn't possibly be giving your children the right nutrition. And the reason why you didn't have electricity is because no one brought electricity out to your house. And one day they come and take your children. Imagine if you were that mother. Could you imagine that God might have mercy on those people who took your children? What about the Hamas terrorists? 
I'm upping the ante here. Would God have mercy on him or her? What if you'd lost your home, your land, and your family to the Israeli Defense Force? Could God have mercy on the Israeli Defense Force? What about the German guard in Auschwitz? Or the commandant? What about one of the Saudi Arabian terrorists that flew a plane into World Trade Center? Would God have mercy on him? What about Hitler? Pol Pot, Stalin, Genghis Khan. Where is your limit to where God might have mercy? Is all all or isn't it? I saw a program, a talk program this week from the Netherlands. In this program, there are two fathers. One is Jewish and one is Palestinian. Both of them have lost daughters. The Palestinian lost his daughter to an Israeli police action. And the Israeli lost his daughter to a Hamas suicide bomber. And they decided to work together. And they were pulling people together in groups, Israelis, Palestinians. Because they thought to themselves, this pain will never disappear. But no one else should ever have to experience it. And they bring these two groups together and they have them talk to one another and make a connection. Try to do something to overwin the wall that's between them. And here's a short little clip where you hear these two fathers speaking with each other and then if you just turn the volume up a little bit, Peter, so it's good in Sometimes I, uh, I wake up in the mornings and I look at myself in the mirror and I say, are you crazy? I am crazy, but, I'm, uh, but this is the only rational choice. If I'll go and kill anyone, will it bring back my baby? If I will, uh, if I cause pain to someone, will it ease my pain? It's rational thinking. It's not a big uh, ideology. No, but, but to be able to think rationally in a situation. To overcome your yeah. natural anger and, and do something with the energy. The energy is real nuclear energy. The energy is what creates this endless cycle of violence. You kill one of me, I will kill ten of you, and on and on and on for, for the last hundred years. What 
can you do with this energy? You kill one of ours. We kill 10 of yours. We kill 25 of ours. We kill 300 of yours. And so it goes on. American evangelicalism is predicated on a wrathful God who needs to be appeased. Someone has to die for his wrath to be satisfied and there to be reconciliation. That's what we've learned. It's not what Paul is saying here. Even the violence of God does not stop violence. What stops violence is mercy. And that's why Paul ends this whole section by saying he has mercy on all. And when you think about that, you really cannot believe it. Sounds, Peter, like there's a little echo here. Could you turn the volume down a little bit? Thanks. You really can't believe it. It just cannot be. And Paul, I can imagine him writing in his letter and sitting there, writing this down, saying, "Ah, this cannot be. This is impossible. I cannot understand it. There is nothing worldly or earthly about it. Everything that we as people do is based on a zero-sum game. You do something, I give you something. You do something bad, I hurt you back. It cannot be that God has mercy on Iris and Nereus. It cannot be, but it is. And what are his very next words? Oh, wow. The depth of the riches and wonders and wisdom and knowledge of God. Ah, I have no words for it. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable. There's nothing human about this at all. This blows every human paradigm apart. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? There's nothing about repayment anywhere in here. God does not deal with us on the basis of a repayment. His fundamental disposition toward us is always love, always, always, always. See what Paul's doing here? He gets to the end of this theological movement, masterpiece, and the only thing he can do is say, ah, there are no words for what God has done in Christ, what he is doing, and what he's going to do. And now we get to our verse, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. You see, see, this is where Paul ends up. And what is this? I've said it before, but God's space meeting our space. In Jesus. God's space meeting our space. 
It reminds me, obviously, and this will be very familiar to you, of Colossians 1. And Christ is before all things, and in him all things together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, uh, grace and truth from John, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross across the board. And that literally should blow up every single paradigm under which we operate. To him be the glory. What greater glory could there be from before God than to reconcile and to bring together that which seems irreconcilable? If your paradigm is, if I just believe the right things, and if I just do the right things, then God will accept me. There's no glory in that. That's just human. That's what we all do all the time. That's boring. God is not asking for you to believe something before. He's not asking you to do something before. Mercy is there, and it's moving, and it's in Jesus, and he gets the glory. When men, women, and children understand that about him and and live together with him, he gets the glory when every kind of brokenness, violence, distance, and pain between people starts to get reconciled, even in the littlest, tiniest ways like these two fathers. Doesn't that give glory to God? Two fathers out of such a loss, pulling people together, saying, Man, we, I know this pain, it will never go away, but I don't want you to ever experience it. That's, there's glory right there. And when the community of humans is reconciled with God's beautiful creation, which he made, and which he wants us to take care of, when maybe the oceans can get a little cleaner, then we can stop burning so many much fossil fuels, stop dumping so much crap all over the place, take care of things, start to, start to move toward what God intended. Don't you hear these sweet, sweet sounds of heaven falling down to this earth Drifting down. Let no woman or child go hungry tonight. Protect us from the pain and the hurt. Let the music play loud. Let it burst through the clouds. And we all feel the heat of the sun. Let us sing. Let us shout. Let us all stand up proud. Let the old still believe that they're young. I smell the sweet, sweet sense of heaven. Coming down. This is my last full sermon as a non-retired parish minister. And you got 45 minutes. Sorry, but not sorry. I want to send you off with this, and I know it's not easy. 
It goes against everything we've been taught. Almost everything. But if this isn't true, then nothing else is. If God isn't merciful in all, and if, he, if Jesus isn't working to reconcile all things to himself, then it's not worth it. But if that's what's happening, then it makes a ton of sense to get up in the morning and to say, God, what do you want me to do this day? I'm not elect so that I can go to heaven when I die. Nope, I'm elect. I'm chosen by you to move into this world and do what you've called me to do. And when I do that, in every single way that I do it, God is glorified. And what better reason for living is there? Amen.